0: Welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Leader Podcast. Darren Mitchell here, and uh, yet another beautiful guest coming to us all the way from the northern hemisphere, Mr. Alex Schlinski. I should pronounce that correctly. You Alex right. Schlinski. <laughs> welcome to welcome to the podcast, my friend.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Darren. I appreciate it. Love it.
0: Now we're going to have uh, a great conversation today about sales prospecting. Uh, Ethics and integrity, which often, when people think about sales and ethics, it's not necessarily the same thing. But uh, I'm I'm fully of the opinion that uh, ethical salespeople are often the salespeople that can be long-standing and sustainably successful. So um, we'll jump in all of that. We'll get to that. But uh, before we jump in, love uh, for you if you can, Alex, to give the listeners a bit of a background as to the little, um, well, a little bit of the background on the Alex story and what you've done and what brings you uh to 2022 what's what's a little bit of a, a bit of a story about alex
1: yeah so i'll try to do this uh in the short firm version because i don't know if necessarily anyone really cares uh but i'll, <laughs> I'll break it down real fast so i'll start with where i'm at now just as a clarity so i run uh two businesses i run a marketing agency for personal injury attorneys here in the united states uh we don't work with anyone outside the us just because the legal stuff is always different for ads um, and then i also run a mentorship community a mastermind program called Prospecting on Demand, which is really my passion project. Uh, it's a great community of about fifty people, um, fifty agencies—more like seventy-five people, but fifty agencies. Uh, I've been doing that since like 2016, so it's been an amazing journey. Um, like the way that this all started, it's pretty crazy uh, to kind of think about this because, like, I just kind of dropped two like pieces of insight that are interesting. Like, I recently spoke at Harvard University, in the United States, which was incredible, and I was I was thinking to myself there and like what would Alex 10 years ago say if you're like, I'm speaking at Harvard and I was like, I I don't have any idea what my 20 year old self would have considered, like how how did that happen? I guess would be the thought. (laughs) I went to school to become either a attorney or a psychologist um, and the interest of potentially going to law school actually is how I started my agency. Um, when I graduated high school, I did an internship with an attorney uh, who was my next door neighbor. And, uh, you know, I got all preppy and looked dressed up for the first day at the courthouse in Miami. And I remember getting into his car and this is kind of a larger man. Um, he has a kind of small BMW, which didn't feel like it matched, but it's all good. <laughs> he also used his uh, his cup holder as an ashtray. So maybe you're starting to get like the oh, sense of what wow. this was. Um, and uh, he lights up a cigarette we get in the car, he starts the car and he's like, Alex, why do you want to be an attorney? And I, I turned on the, you know, the charm, like what I thought he wanted to hear. And I gave him the spiel and I want to make a difference and I want to do something that's impactful and blah, 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 blah. And so he, hears my whole thing and he goes, okay, great. My mission over the next two months is to make sure you do not become an attorney. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I never heard anyone be so like casually transparent about the pitfalls of a career choice. Cause I think when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, like it's the job of people in university and college and high school and like people in that in that age group to not to try to put your rose colored glasses on on the positives, not the negatives, right. And like definitely outweigh the positives with the negatives, but he was just for the next hour on the drive to the courthouse that my life sucks going to school was the worst where I work with the worst people the money is fine but the hours are terrible blah 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 and just going over it and it just changed my perspective really quick obviously because I was very impressionable and I was very excited about it and I think I had a fairy tale idea of what it would be like to be an attorney and to make a difference and so when I went to college um you know I needed some money so at that time Facebook had just started Facebook business pages um and he was like I think this is gonna be a hit uh, can you post for me every day on Facebook when you're in school? I'll pay you a thousand bucks a month, which was like, mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> absolutely. So I started doing that for a little bit of time and uh, you know, look, college requires some other investments, right? I think you hmm. guys can do two together and I needed more money. I had a girlfriend. Um, I was paying for school. Uh, I didn't really want to take out loans. So I asked him only the natural thing, which was, Hey, look, you went to law school not too far away from my school. Do you know any other attorneys that are around here? And he sent me like 20 attorneys, Wow. Um, half of those became clients. I started having a $10,000 a month company, um, but I, I didn't think of it like that. I wasn't an entrepreneur at the time. I was really dedicated to school. I just thought I was the smartest side hustle hustler there ever was. I just never put two and two together really what was happening. So I went four years uh, to do psychology. I graduated cum laude at the University of Central Florida, which no one gives a shit about except my mom. Um, and uh <laughs> I quickly realized thereafter that I did not want to go back to school. The reason why is even though I graduated with honors, it wasn't because I was just naturally smart. It's because I just did like a lot of the hard work that was required. And I sacrificed a lot because of that. And I think I burned myself out pretty strongly of like the work was required. And I could see some of the other people that had graduated with honors at school. Like it was just because of their natural gifts of being very, very intelligent or having incredible memory, which is fine, right? Like that's okay. Everyone has different gifts. But uh, I realized quickly I just didn't have the stamina to go anymore. So I graduated school, right? And it, and you feel lost when you graduate school, and now you're 20, whatever. I think I was what 22, 23. And I'm like, what, what do I do now? Like, yeah. I'm not an attorney. I'm not going to become a psychologist. And I had obviously this money that I was making from attorney, so at least I had something. So naturally, I went on Facebook, right? And I went on Google, and I started searching about like you know ways to make money and and posting on social media. And then I found out that what I was doing was actually a service called social media management. I'd never thought of that word. I'd never heard of that word. I didn't have that paradigm. That wasn't a school like class that was taught back then in 2010, you know, 12, 11, uh, et cetera. That wasn't an option. And now when I searched that, then I started learning about digital marketing. I was like, what is this? I have, I have no yeah. idea what this is. And as soon as that happens, you start getting ads. And that's when I saw mentorship in the biz op in this space only to recognize Yo, I've been running this business already for four years. What, what is going on? This is crazy. I couldn't believe it. And um, from there, you know, I I invested in some mentorship and coaching. I had my wife quit her job as a restaurant manager. and We went full force on the agency for about three years. We had amazing success with it, which I'm super grateful for. And then soon thereafter, we switched over to the the coaching program, mostly because working with attorneys, it's tough. I mean, it's tough. I'm an emotional person. They're, you know, constantly rude, never satisfied with anything. Um, and being rude to me is one thing, but being rude to my wife, uh, it's something yeah. I don't very well. Um, yeah. And I have a tendency towards not handling my emotions super great. I've definitely been better over time, but you know, I wasn't great back then, and I'm better now. I wouldn't say I'm perfect, but I think anyone can understand. Like having your wife get yelled at or screamed at by an attorney for something very stupid is not, you know, easy to deal with. So we handed that business off mostly and just started doing the coaching and the fulfillment from that. I mean, it's just amazing, you know, and as we're doing this podcast, Aaron, and we just ran our eighth live event, we had 85 people out in Tampa, Florida. Um, it was, it was just incredible, a three-day experience and, um, yeah, you know, I'm just very fulfilled now. So that's kind of like the journey of the last 10 to 12 years. It's been absolutely wild and, crazy. And it's always funny to tell people like, I ran a marketing agency for four years without knowing it. And people are just always like, what? And I explain it as kind of strange how it happened. But, you know, you think back then and, you know, if just like one thing changed in freshman year of college. Like if I had seen one person talk about social media management or anything, like when I would tell people about my side hustle, yeah, no one knew what that was. No yeah. one, not one person. Everyone's side hustle in college was either selling weed or, or like selling textbooks back. Right. Or like selling grades, like stuff, like no one was doing posting on Facebook for like businesses. And it, it just, it just trick crazy how how your life, like it happens, you know, if one thing changed in sophomore year, maybe I would have quit school and maybe I would have, you know, gone faster, but I don't look anything backwards with uh, any sort of negativity whatsoever. It was, it was all positive. Um, and then sprinkled in there, you know, worked with the Miami dolphins, which is a a football team here in the U S and i worked with the UFC. Um, and I also did, uh, you know, I also had heart surgery, so some crazy stuff also. And I have a little man, I have a little kid now too. So it's been an insane 12 years, but it's cool. It's it's a, it's been an exciting and uh, fun journey. So hopefully that gives a good encapsulation.
0: Yeah, it does. It's almost like, uh, summarizing (laughs) all that, it's almost like you didn't know what you didn't know. And that was, that was a benefit back then. So, um, and intriguing, the intriguing question is it all started with a guy smoking cigarettes in his BMW saying, do not become an attorney. Um,
1: weird how that all started.
0: And, and through that experience, I'm assuming that, uh, you've got no intention of now ever becoming an attorney.
1: Say it again. I think I'm I'm sure
0: I'm, I'm assuming now that, uh, looking back on this and all the experience of what you've been doing, you'll have no intention of ever becoming an attorney now.
1: No, hell no, definitely not. (laughs) No way. I think right after that, you know, first uh, conversation that I had, it was pretty evident, like, this is not something I wanted. I'll tell you like just a one additional piece to it. That's really interesting. Um, I don't know if you've, if you have this in Australia, but in the United States, there's like a real obsession with like true crime. I don't know if it's the same thing in, in Australia or not, but it is yep. an absolute obsession here in the US. Like you're talking about sh- dozens, hundreds of shows and documentaries and docu-series about, and podcasts about murder and crime and rape and bank robberies and everything. It's It's pretty mind blowing. And I was super interested in that when I was in high school. And I think what I did was I fantasized like what that life would be like if I was a criminal psychologist. Like, I thought that was interesting, like how the human brain works. And I did really unique classes in college about it. And um, I did like um, the sociology of murder was one of my classes and it was super fascinating. But then like you do one externship, you go to one like actual interview with a crazy person, a straight up psychopath. And then you realize this is not a television show. This is real life with real people, with real victims, with real crazy people, and it, and it honestly like that day when I did that we went to a battered woman's shelter and um man it just it really affected me in a super negative way because it was like I fantasized what this was and it and I realized that I was tricked by media and my stupidity thinking that it, this is something to like be excited about and it's just the opposite and I wanted nothing to do with that I don't want to ha- I don't want to be a part of that in any way I want to do something that's like enjoyable and fun and jovial not like yeah. depressing and sad every day so it's weird how life is you know does these things to you it's very strange
0: absolutely and in in there you it's it's interesting how people are conditioned to think in a certain way so people watching those sort of programs will will probably get a from a psychology point of view you think that this is what this is what this is real and as you said you you saw a real a real life situation speaking to a real life psychopath and you think (laughs) well i'm not sure this is what i want to be involved in at all 100 percent 100% 100% unbelievable it's now, crazy how that all happens oh absolutely now you mentioned a couple of interesting things there and i want to sort of segue because i know that uh, you are seen as and known as the iron man of marketing yeah and you're young man you're you've you've you know, you're in your in your 30s and you just mentioned there open heart surgery so yes. is um, and I'm going to make an assumption here. Is the Ironman of marketing connected to that or is it, yeah, does it come about from, from a yeah, different situation? Yeah, yeah so what happened? When I
1: was 18 years old, um, when I graduated high school, uh, I was going to go to Israel for a year uh, to do my first semester out there abroad um, or first couple semesters out there abroad and you just have to do a regular checkup. During the regular checkup, the doctor said I had a heart murmur. Um, And he sent me to a cardiologist who told me that I was born with a bicuspid aortic valve. So your heart is supposed to open up in a Mercedes-Benz sign or a peace sign. So three valves. Mine opened up in a semicircle with the third valve attached to the second valve. So every time it pumped, uh, blood would leak back into the heart. And when blood leaks back into the heart, it has to pump again to get the blood back out of the heart. And so what ends up happening over time is your heart overworks the muscle. And when you overwork a muscle, the muscle gets larger. And so when your heart gets larger, um, it either needs to be two things. One, it needs to be replaced, which is very not good. Or two, the valve needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. So when I was 18, they told me 100% your surgery would be imminent. They said 95%, but like pretty much everyone that has this problem will have to have surgery in their life, but it will probably be when you're 60 or 70 years old. So you're fine. Just live your life. Obviously, that's not something you want to hear at uh, 18 or 19 years old. It was you know, completely life-changing in every way. And I think, um, what I ended up realizing was, you know, I thought I would have a cap roughly like 90 to hundred years old. I think when I was younger, it's hard to remember now. Cause I'm, you know, 12, 13 years older now, but still yeah. like, I think that's what it was. So inherently my thought process was now, if I have a cap of like 60 or, or 70, when I would have to have the surgery, I need to move faster than other people. And so I would rev the engine. Like I worked really hard. I, be- I believed heavily in hustle culture. Like I watched every Gary Vaynerchuk video, read all the Grant Cardone books. I loved listening to David Goggins, just like scream at the top of his lungs while he's running. Like you're not working hard enough. That stuff really <laughs> fired me up. I was really intrigued by that. I love that. I'm a kind of fiery person in general. So like, I really resonated with that. Um, so I just worked really, really, really hard. Um, and then, you know, I had success. And then 10 years later, Right before our first live event for POD, Prospecting on Demand, um, I went to a regular checkup. I had to get a checkup every year called an echocardiogram. It's the same type of machine that they use for women during pregnancy, but it's for your Mm. heart. Um, Just they measure the size of your valves and the size of your heart. And they're basically like, hey, it's time to intervene. Like your heart has grown to a point that we're not comfortable with. And if we don't intervene in the coming years, you could either die from a heart attack or it will get to a point where we have to intervene to avoid that. And it will be a heart transplant, which is a significantly worse surgery and really diminishes your quality of life and your expectation of life. The amazing thing about medicine is the, the aortic valve replacement, which is AVR. It's a very common surgery um, for heart surgery. Um, the success rate is basically 100%. The only time it's not is from operator error, which is very rare. You're not, mm. You shouldn't be cardiologist or cardiac surgeon or thoracic surgeon if you have error. Um, or if there's some underlying problem that you have that they didn't know. So obviously before you do the surgery, oh my God, Darren, I did every test in the world that you have to do to make sure that there's nothing else possibly wrong so that they know Mm. every single variable and they just go in there and fix the valve and then you're good. And so basically, um, you know, I had to do the valve replacement, but it happened during COVID. So we were scheduling it for March of 2020, which I'm guessing everyone remembers what happened then. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we had to push it off until June, which again, they pushed it off again, because it wasn't good enough for June. And then we finally did it in October. So I had to wait 10 months from the day they told me I had to do the surgery to doing it, which was by far the worst part. Cause every single day you're like, is that feeling, am I going to die? Am I going to have a heart attack? What's going to happen? And it just was terrible. There's no other way to put it. And then in the midst of that, my wife got pregnant with our first child. And so I had to actually have the surgery when my wife was five months pregnant, which was terrible. Wow. Um, but you know, I had amazing doctors and uh, they really took care of me. And the last thing the doctor told me, he came up to me and he's like, are you ready to go? Like, you know, like uh, fired up, you know, spirit, which no, I was not ready to go, you know, I was scared and nervous and worried that I wasn't going to wake up. And it was, you know, shitty. And he said the last thing he said to me in a completely very stern and like very deliberate tone, like, I promise you, you will meet your son. That was the last thing he said. And then wow. uh, the medicine. And um, the last logical thought I remember was, I feel like I should be sleeping by now. That was the last thing I remember. Um, and then I remember waking up and waking up was like, it was weird. It was like being born again, but like remembering it. Cause none of us remember when we were born, but I remember, nah, I remember opening my eyes. I remember seeing my my wife. I remember holding her belly. I remember like all the tubes and everything, but nothing mattered. Cause I was obviously very drugged up. But the only yeah. thing I remember was I'm on the other side. I made it. Wow. I made it to the other side. And so uh, October 15th will be two years. Which is crazy, honestly, Darren. It's 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 unfathomable almost to to say that out loud. I can't I can't believe it. My thirty first birthday was September fourth, but it doesn't feel like my birthday anymore. Um, October fifteenth really feels like my birthday. It feels like the day I was born again. My son was born one hundred seventeen days um, after my surgery. Um, he was my first child. He's the best thing in the world. I'm super mm. super grateful to be alive and to spend time with him. Um, and thank God I'm good. So the crazy thing about the surgery and medicine now is I, I have a a mechanical heart valve. So I have okay. an on mechanical heart valve is a piece of pure carbon. Um and uh it will last longer than I will last, um, wow. which is crazy. And uh, my chance of reintervention resurgery is less than five percent, which is incredible. Um and the only downside is I have to take blood thinners for the rest of my life. But you know, at oh. thirty-one taking it's not that big of a deal. When I get older, it might be a little bit more of a big deal. But look, I mean, in comparison, the other option is a tissue valve. Um, that tissue valve, though, one hundred percent guaranteed. You have to have reintervention within five to ten years, which is like yeah. hell no. I'm not doing that. No chance. I don't want to have surgery when I'm when my son is five, uh, when he can ask me, "Daddy, what's wrong?" Like I don't. Yeah, I don't exactly. Know. Exactly. Um, that's why. That's why I'm the Ironman marketing is crazy right now. Across from us, I. I have um, the Ironman heart. My team bought me the Ironman heart. I, when I came home, I we had it, um, which is great. And um, yeah, you know, it's good to be alive. I can say that for sure. I have a lot of gratitude for
0: sure. And um, it sounds like you know there's a because you said before and after. There's obviously a, a completely different feeling from uh just winning yourself. Is it? Is it? No. That's probably not the obvious question. Is it noticeable? Like, did you know? uh you know when you're 18 i know you you didn't know you had a a a checkup but looking back on it was there was there signs was there fatigue or was like you know what no idea i don't
1: know know, honestly it's hard to say because you know i've I've asked people in groups like facebook groups really helped me during this because there's like groups i'm part of called like the heart warrior surgery group or the zipper club group and like you know, having that support system of all these people that have been through, but you've been through, is just amazing. I mean, it's super powerful. Like humans really need connection. And most people I know, thankfully haven't had heart surgery. So, you know, speaking to even strangers, literally complete strangers, there was some guy that I spoke to from Pittsburgh. He spoke to me on the hour and a half on the phone, answering every single question I had. I never, I'm, I don't know who this guy is, but he just gave me that time. Cause he knows what it was like going through it himself five years prior when he was 30 and I was 30 yeah. when I had my senior 29. So um, no, it's hard to know because what you think, like some people like think, oh, that's heartburn. I don't know if that's having a heart attack. Uh, what yeah. some people yeah. think is their normal fatigue. I don't know if that's a problem with my fatigue. So I never knew. Cause it was my, it was my, when my normal was, I didn't know what the baseline was in comparison yeah. and doctor can't really tell you because you can't feel what someone else feels. So
0: pretty strange to go through that experience for sure it just, uh, when things happen like that, specifically with your health or health of your loved ones, you do appreciate how how short life is really and how precious life is. And- yeah, and that's,
1: that's actually <clears> why <throat> I did the speech at Harvard. They asked me to come speak for that purpose because I think a lot of people that talk about like the gratitude of life and the amount of time you have left and all that kind of stuff, usually older people, like 60, yeah. 70, 80-year-old people, veterans, like that kind of stuff. So when you hear it from like a 31-year-old, everyone has this invincibility complex car yeah, accident that would never be me someone has cancer that would never be me someone has heart surgery that would never be me it's just it just beings yeah. work um from our reptilian brain as like a way to protect ourselves from the things we're most afraid of right yeah. but unfortunately the reality is people do have those problems people do die from those things um and it's unfortunate but when we recognize like how grateful we should be. That's really important to me. So like the thing I'm always talking about is intention, just being Hmm. intentional about what you want and, and not procrastinating on it. We're so constantly procrastinating. One of the lines that I have in my speech that I do for these, like for the heart surgery, which is called the power of intention is that so often we procrastinate on things that we want to do in favor of things we hate doing. And it's like, because we think we have to but we, but you don't have to, you get to choose. Right? You have yeah. the, you have choice, right? You have agency to identify whether you're an entrepreneur or not, by the way. Yeah. There's always consequences to every choice you make, but some of those consequences are far worse than others, you know? And so anytime someone passes away, when I see that, I'm always thinking about like, what were they working on? What, what, what plans did they have? What things were happening? What things did they procrastinate on? So mm. especially for older people, I'm always trying to tell them like, man, take the fucking day off and go take your, Go, go see your kid, go spend time with your grandchild, watch Star Wars with them, like do, do the things you want to do. Don't wait on it. You know, Um, both my parents are alive and well, when I was younger, my, my dad had a stroke and almost died when I was 15 and he's alive and it's amazing. And he gets to be with my son. And unfortunately, a lot of people's stories are not like that. There's people that will listen to this podcast and, or hear me talk and their dad had a stroke when they were 15 and, and they died. And no. that was the last time they saw them. And it's final, whatever your religion is, whatever that's fine. Okay, fine. Even if you say you'll see them after death. Okay, well, you're probably going to live for a lot longer. Thankfully, it's pretty final, you know, like that's yeah. the reality. Um, and I'm super grateful for that. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. grateful for every every conversation I have with my parents. And um, I tell it to everyone I speak to, like, if you have calls from your mom or your dad, at any point, you must pick up the phone, no matter what, I always have a rule, I'll always pick up their phone calls. No matter what and just to make sure everything's fine that's just a rule i have so it's the same rule i want for my child and that's something i'm going to you know continue to portray as an authority
0: it's a it's a really interesting point because often we can take loved ones for granted thinking they'll always be there um and i remember a few years ago because i live away from my mum. i mean when i say i live away was in the same state but on opposite sides of of the of the city and i reflect back and it wasn't until probably covid really hit that I started to put in place a discipline around speaking with her at a certain time each week. And thankfully it's been, it's, we've kept that up, but I look back and think, you know, it was very ad hoc in terms of contacting. And so our mum's always going to be there. And she still is, she's just still around. So it's all good, but um, not taking that for granted. and, And as you say, taking the phone call, having that regular contact. Now you do that with your mother, you should do that with your family members you should do that with your, with your friends. You should also do that with your key prospects. So I want to I want to translate this to um, to to sales and, and business as well. Before we call, talk about the prospecting on demand and some of the intricacies of of that, um, love to know your your experience around the heart surgery. Did that? What sort of impact did that have on the business? Because I know you're already quite successful in what you're doing, but did that give you a different level of uh, impetus if you like to to really make a difference and really and fast track things or to get you to slow down a little bit and start thinking about you know what really is important here
1: yeah that, the, the the latter for sure so because i felt like i had read the engine so much that i accelerated my problems um you know i thought the most important thing to do was the anti-hustle model right to slow down to avoid the hustle And I think what I've found is that there's two different types of people, especially entrepreneurs. There's people that have like the desire to be, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, where they want to have like an IPO, Elon Musk, where they want to have an IPO for a hundred million dollar business. And like, you know, the anti-hustle model doesn't really work for those type of people. But I think the problem is, is that all the top leaders in the entrepreneur space only speak that language. They only speak the Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. Uh, Bill Gates, uh, $100 million IPOs, $500 million acquisition language, that's it. And mm-hmm. so people that never have the intention of that at all, they just want to make $20,000, $30,000 a month and provide for their family and have a little bit of a more than lavish lifestyle, just a little bit, like have a car that they want and travel where they want, have time, freedom and financial freedom and work with people they like, which is, you know, a large majority of people. Yep. they They are like listening to David Goggins yell at you and they think they're not good enough. They think they're not, they're not doing enough. They're not, You know, they listen to Jocko Willink and they're like, if I'm not waking up at five, I'm a bad person. It's, it's strange how this works. So my goal and mindset in POD and in my coaching and the way that I do, you know, speaking engagements, it's like, I try to do the exact opposite. I try to speak to the people that are like, it's okay to slow down. So we have a three-step process that we coach define design and do most people just do That's That's what a lot of people are focused on just doing things everything's binary. There's no priorities. It's just task, 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 and it's never ending. So you finish your task list, but there's already 18 things added on top of it and it just never ends. It's just a sequence of more task work just doing, and you're just running in a forest. There's no finish line. You have no idea where you're going. It's like running on a treadmill, right? You run a lot, but you don't get anywhere, right? So one of the metaphors I use is just trying to understand like who wins in a race, Usain Bolt or Mo Farah. And for those of you who don't know, who Mo Farah is, he's a long distance runner. Well, obviously, the only way to answer that question is how long the race is, which is the definition, right? And the thing is, entrepreneurs don't define what their race is. So they just run for the sake of it. Or worse, they let someone that has no idea what their life is about define it for them. Like a Tony Robbins or a Gary Vaynerchuk or a Grant Cardone, right? And they're like, you must 10x. You must work harder. You must hustle more. It's like, that doesn't add up, though. Like, why are you letting someone else define? So- The problem that we see with people defining their wins, defining what success is, defining what happiness is, is one, they're afraid that they don't know what makes them happy, which is completely fine. Give yourself a guesstimate, work towards that. If you hit it and you're not satisfied, optimize for it. No problem, You don't have to hit every single goal you, you work towards, you optimize towards getting closer. And then the second reason is they're afraid that they won't achieve the lofty goals or aspirations. And what I find very often is people will put together what they think will make them happy and then they achieve half of that and they're really happy. And they're like, Oh, this is great. This is awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. So defining is really important. And then designing is the next step, which is like putting together a yellow brick road to the achievement, to the best of your ability. Yeah. You might go off course a bit, but if you just go and expect that you're just going to get there without any milestones in place, it's just not going to happen. Like a lot of people want to define and then do if you yep. don't design you're just not going to make it happen. And if you have a foundational framework to get to that place, that's how we win. So to me, I'm a big believer of the anti-hustle model, breaking the monotony of hustle culture, of working harder just for the sake of it. I'm all about working smarter and really defining what you want. So that's what I'm about. Like I'm in the mission right now to to work half days only on Fridays to spend more time with my son, something I'm constantly working on and making sure I'm putting together the systems for it because that's something I really want to do. Not because Mm -hmm. someone else told me, i'll tell you a quick allegory on this that's powerful like roughly a year ago might have been longer but you know i i slept in one day it was definitely more than a year ago because my son wasn't born so (laughs) so i woke i slept in late um, because i must have been whatever doing something the night prior like you know watching some movie too late and um i woke up i think around like nine o'clock and so i i quickly texted my business partner i was like hey man i'm so sorry i'll be on slack which is where we communicate I'll be on Slack soon. I'm sorry, I'm late. And he responded just like just this simple text late to whom? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, dude, it's your business. Like no one makes your hours. Who said you're late? Yeah. And it was just such a freeing moment to hear that because I think we're, we have a, a construct, a social construct of what appropriate hours are, appropriate work rate is because we forget that we have agency. And I think you know scapegoatism is really common in entrepreneurship because we want to blame other people like that's how human beings are taking ownership of the hard so what we want to do is we want to blame other people so when you have a boss or a manager blame them blame them blame them but when you're your own boss when you're the ones that that you're in control of the systems you're in control of the results there's no one to blame but there's also benefit in that by identifying then if that's the case you can literally manufacture whatever you want out of your life it's pretty amazing 100 might, might take a long time but that's okay yeah you have time to make it happen so that's that's what i'm all about that's kind of my model definitely not you know the hustle culture it's not my thing
0: and if you look at uh if you look at society around the world and australia is no different it's it's instant gratification you must do this uh it's comparison playing the comparison game so we're and we're all conditioned by the environment and think well if you're not hustling if you're not working 10 12 13 14 hours a day then you're not doing the right thing i mean who's who says that is that is effective um crazy
1: so social media also has created a mindset of competition that's super unhealthy. That also makes people think someone's inherently better because they make more money than you. Mm. Which I don't know where that mindset came from. Um, I'll tell you a story. When I, when I was younger, um, you know, my father was a funeral director. My mom uh, ran her own art studio, um, and uh, you know, we were moderately, you know, middle class. You know, we had a you know, normal house, normal car, nothing fancy. I, it was an amazing childhood. Didn't feel like I missed out on anything. Yeah. But, you know, as I walked in the community with my father, you know, we'd see the two, three story houses. We'd see the Mercedes. We'd see the nicer cars, the fountains in the driveway, you know, like just a little bit more lavish than what we mm. had. So I remember maybe 10, 11 years old, I asked my dad one time, like, you know, why are you not as successful as these people? Kind of a rude question to ask. But, you know, the audacity of a 10 or 11 year old and the curiosity is just, you don't understand the social construct of, you know, it's kind of a rude question to ask someone that's giving you everything, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and three. so now that I have a child, I think you I didn't recognize like the amount of sacrifice required to be a parent. And uh, I have even more respect and appreciation for my parents now um, being a dad um, than I did prior. And I, had already, I already had a lot. So, you know, I remember we stopped. I remember it so vividly that just we stopped walking He put both of his hands on my shoulder. And he very calmly said to me, I'm the most successful person in the world. And I was like, I didn't know the word delusional at the time, but that's what I was thinking. Like, is my dad delusional? You know, I think my brain had crazy probably was the word that I was thinking at that time. And he would say, (laughs) I'm the most successful person in the world because I have you and your two brothers. I'm the most successful person in the world because I have an amazing wife that loves me, cares for me, and I love her. I'm the most successful person in the world because I have a roof over our head and I have the means to make sure that we are provided for. And I have an amazing community that backs me up and that's there for me. And when he said that, he was explaining to me such an important lesson that I love explaining to others, which is success isn't defined by the amount of money you have in your bank account or the cars that you drive or the trips that you take. It's determined only by you. And I Mm -hmm. think when people hear me say this, they're like, oh, yeah, only poor people say that. (laughs) It's just not the reality. It's just not the reality, right? It's like, the reality comes down to you you can manufacture what you want out of your life if you are capable of doing it. And sometimes it's much harder, you know, it's harder to manufacture what you want out of life when you have three kids and you're a single mom. I respect that. I understand that. And it will probably take much longer to manufacture what you want than an 18 year old listening to this that has everything in front of them. I respect Mm -hmm. that. I understand that. But at the end of the day, like you still have that capability, you still have that capability It just in your path. On your version. And I think that's really, really important to me. And I, I I try to match that every day, just trying to make sure that I have clarity of what I'm hunting for, because in general, I'm a hunter at, at, at birth. That's who I am. I'm a hunter. I want to make deals. I want to make things happen. I'm going to, I want to create more opportunities, make more money. And if I don't do it, I feel lesser than, but that's not really what I want. That's who I am at the core, but it's not really what I want. And when I remind mm-hmm. myself of those things, it helps me a lot.
0: Yeah. And I think I think the big part of that is as human beings, and it's a natural tendency, we've got to sort of resist the temptation to constantly compare ourselves to other people yeah. and keep the scoreboard to say, well, you've got a better car than me or you've got a bigger house or whatever. You know what? It's not, it's not, it's not the definition of success.
1: No, it's not. And it's also not relevant. Like, because the reality is the person that you're comparing to doesn't give a shit about you. That's the truth, and you're wasting your time and energy on something you don't have control over. And and there's so few things that we really do have control over that if we don't focus on those things enough, then we're just going to become just desperate, just desperate, and feel like you know basically nihilistic. Like there's nothing worthwhile. Life is not worth it. And I think life is really worth it as someone that almost had it ripped away. So
0: yeah, absolutely. I,
1: I really think it's worth it.
0: Absolutely. And it points to uh, as a really good connection there, because obviously the, the way that you work with your, with your coaching clients, you, it's, it's spending so much time on defining and then designing. So what does success look like for you uh, versus just going out and, and, and busting the grind and actually getting things done without necessarily thinking about that and think, oh, well, based on what I've done this week. This is what I've achieved. So therefore that equals success. I'll do more next week and I'll increase it by X percentage and hopefully I'll get better results. Taking a step back and thinking, well, what does success look like? For me, it might be, you know, working four hours a day, but I'll get a couple of clients and then and those clients will represent X. And I'm happy with that because I'm making a contribution. So talk to me about because I know when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, uh, we we're talking about selling and and obviously prospecting, and you mentioned something that was almost counterintuitive that most salespeople are considered and that is ethical selling. <laughs> so I love, I love your take on that because my, my background working with business to business sales leaders, it's, all, it's always based on ethics because it's, it's the seeds that we're continuing planting. And yes, you may have to quote unquote hustle. You may have to close deals to, in order to get things over the line, but doing things in an ethical way you always got to be conscious of the examples you're setting and the impressions you're creating because you're going to be doing business in most cases with, with these people again and again and again. So how how important is it in relation to, to selling is ethics to you?
1: I think it's everything, right? People want to talk about like B2B sales or B2C sales. There's no such thing. It's always P2P. It's person to person always, right? they might be, you know, responsible for something larger than just that human being. But at the end of the day, it's like the simple framework of ethical selling comes down to the way you want to be sold there. I think there's some people that just really want to believe so much in the doggy dog world format. Like in order to achieve something, you have to step on someone else. And I don't know, I, I feel like that's just such a nasty way to think about life. Um, And I get it. Some people listen to that and think maybe I'm privileged. And I feel like that's probably fair. I feel like it's probably fair. You know, I've never had to bite for food or, um, you know, I never had any of those scenarios before. I never had that experience. So I think, you know, I don't want to sit on a high horse when explaining it, but I think most people listening to the podcast, um, you know, would, would be just regular salespeople that have had a normal upbringing and a normal opportunity to support people. The idea of sales is just presenting an opportunity for mutual benefit, right? Where if you provide this opp- this investment to me, I provide this result back to you. And if you're not selling with integrity or with ethics or, you know, really having the best interest at heart of the prospect, karma is either going to come back around to you or you're going to put someone in a detrimental situation um, that's very unfortunate and un- unreasonable. So, like, I think ethical sales is everything. It's just, it's the simplest, like, thing possible. Like, any religious person ever would, no- like, knows that classic Bible thought process of, like, treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. And it's just the same thing in sales. Like just treat sales like prospects the way that you want to be treated. You don't want to be sold the moon and promised the w- world and then provided jack shit. No one wants that. Everyone wants to be treated and sold appropriately. And I think some people think they have to sell that way because of the objections that are provided. I've found that transparency and objection handling versus telling them what they want to hear so you get paid is actually infinitely more valuable and they respect you more and are willing to buy more because sometimes objections are just veiled ways to be like is this person jerking my chain like are they bsing me it, that's what happens a lot you know so i think you cannot sell without ethics otherwise you're just the con artist and anytime i coach sales i'm speaking at an event with like a thousand people um in like a month from today basically yep. and uh at the event, um, you know, I'm going to be coaching sales. It's one of the main things I coach. And every event that I do, I always talk about like, look, like if you don't plan on using the tactics that I share with you today, ethically or with integrity, like just leave the room. Like there's no yeah. point of being in here. Like don't be a snake oil salesman. Don't sell by any means necessary. Don't sell just because. Sell because the prospect needs it. You're a product that works and you can help someone. And That is empowering, man. I mean, that's really, really, really empowering.
0: And, it's, and, and what happens when you do that is the natural consequence is you'll do business. Exactly. But not only that, you'll do repeat business because of the way you make that person feel. It is not the case of you have the product that you have to sell. And, and let's let's be honest, there are a lot of organizations that uh, place so much pressure on their sales people to hit a number, so they're just indoctrinated and almost brainwashed in terms of just go out there and hustle and 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 close as many deals as you as you possibly can. Telemarketers are the worst. They've got a script, and if they've got a live customer, they've got they got a like a, if the customer says this, do this, overcome that objection. Just always be closing, always be closing. That's not ethics. Um, one of the things I've I learn and, and things that I I sort of taught my sales team is sometimes sometimes you've got to take a cust- a, a, a prospects uh, opportunity away from them. Take take the product away from them. Take the take the service away from them. And almost make them earn it because you don't you don't necessarily sell your product just to anybody. They have to qualify for it. And it's a completely different um, kettle of fish in terms of mindset and psychology that a lot of people don't get. They just say, no, I've got this product and this is, the, this is the kicker. If you talk to most salespeople who represent any organization, any product, they'll probably tell you that they've got the best product on the marketplace. They've got the best widget, the best this, best that customers don't care that aren't your product they could not care less about your product what they want is a solution to a problem that uh, that they either know they have or uh, became aware that they had having had a conversation with you so if you are not ethical then you're not going to do business but also just uh, consider this how many people will that person talk to if you are not showing levels of ethics and integrity yeah. for that conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean one of the things that we talk about in POD is the idea that you want them to have this mindset that they feel they're really happy that they bought from you. That's what you want. That's like really effective sales when someone can say after the fact like I'm really happy I bought this from you. And what we do is we do this thought exercise of identifying like what was the thing that you purchased that you know you just loved. And you think about it for a second and then you're like how did that make you feel? And people are like, ah, oh, free, amazing, confident, awesome, et cetera. It's like, that's what people are buying. They they buy the feeling, right? So yeah, they want a result, but they want the feeling attached to that result. So if you're helping a chiropractor generate more business, right? There's a deeper why than just them wanting to get more business. They want the feeling of security, of confidence, of of consistency. They want the feeling that they don't have to do everything themselves, that they have someone to help them. Like those things are more deep than just here's more money right I think people just get lost on sight of here's more money opportunities it's not just more money that people want right no not just more money they want a feeling they want something deeper than that and ultimately if you can provide that to them then you can really effectively sell
0: absolutely and if and if when you when you have salesperson and integrity connected and you've got a customer that's looking at a salesperson thinking I like doing business with Alex because of, of the way he treats me and the way he, Represents his organisation and he tells the truth. Then I'm going to want to do business, more business with him. But also I'm going to introduce him to other people, in my sphere of influence. Um, I remember years ago I bought a a Volkswagen and a classic classic sales salesperson right in 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 car sales. All over me leading up to uh, the sale, and when I say all over it, it was literally daily phone calls uh, trying to get a deal. As soon as the contract was signed, crickets. Crickets, right? Yeah, at the time, and he knew I was in sales. He knew I was a sales leader. And yet he still demonstrated the same methodology to try and get him, because he made it all about himself. It wasn't about me at all. And I, for years, have been telling my sales team, and when when I coach people, I'm always saying that the sale actually begins after the sale is actually made. So you can get a product, but you have to now deliver that product, and it's what you do after the sale that tells the customer everything they need to know about you. Are you going to be there following up? Are you going to be there making sure that the service actually works as to the promise you made? Or are you going to be off looking at the next the next new piece of, piece of business? So that's where ethics and integrity comes in for me. Um,
1: I actually use that as a sales tactic on my calls too, which is like, hey, when you join, the job begins. It doesn't end, right? It's not like, okay, you join Darren and then we're immediately looking for the next Darren. That's such a problem in the agency space and sales space today that's not our goal. We're here to support you and back up what we say. We do that, but you've got to back up your word too and let's make this happen. And people really appreciate that. And then we deliver it, which makes them even happier. That's the idea. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Now, I know in your in your bio, you talk about, uh, well, you're, you're known as the Michael Jordan of sales. Ha!
1: I don't know if who said that, but I'm down. I'm more of a Le-
0: more of a LeBron
1: James guy myself. Oh, Le-
0: Le- Le- LeBron James. Well they're I'll both phenomenal, phenomenal basketballers. But um yeah. in, in relation to sales objection, because I, I always love talking about objections because a lot of salespeople are almost taught to uh, overcome objections. What's what's your take on objections? And you talk about a bridge method to bypass objections and specifically closing on the first call.
1: Yeah. So my big process related to objections is just isolating variables. Like I I think a lot of people, um, they're trying to handle objections after the fact. The idea is if you do 10 sales calls and you identify the objections you're getting post pitch, meaning after you've made your offer, if you write those all down, can you handle those prior to them saying it? And some people are worried that like, oh, why would I bring an objection to the table before it's said? The reality is if you've ever heard this line, if one person says it, 10 people are thinking it. It's very unlikely that if you speak to the same type of avatar over and over, that if one person says an objection that not everyone is considering it, they probably are. So Mm. isolating variables is key. Like the simplest, most important isolation of variable that we recommend for the one call close framework is the price and the value and the desire. Meaning what ends up happening a lot of times is someone will be like at the end of the call and be like, okay, so in order to start our glow system to get you 10 more patients per month, doctor, it's going to be $2,500 a month. Do you want to do this? it's like what you've done just now is you've combined the price with their desire. So before you get to that, if you're like, hey, just to confirm, what you're looking for is our glow system to get you 10 new patients per month. Is that right? Like, yeah. well, what's the price? Well, before the price, right? If the price makes sense to you, is this what you were hoping for from this call? Mm. You were. Perfect. Excellent. I think this is a no-brainer for you. Here's why. It's only going to be a $2,500 a month investment. It's an absolute no-brainer because you're going to make this amount of money back. We should work together. You should do this. Yep. That's separating the variables are so key, right? The other variables obviously are going to be the decision maker variable. It's going to be, do you have the the urgency variable? So when we talk about the bridge concept, it's pretty easy. It's the four W's. It's where are you now? Where do you want to be? What's the obstacle and what's the urgency? And if you think about it on a bridge, one side of the bridge is where they currently are at. The other side of the bridge is their desired location. There is no bridge there. So they can't go from one side to the other. So there's a gap. That's the obstacle. And then the question is, how fast do they want to go over it? Do they want to go directly over it? Do they want to go in a roundabout way? Do they want to take a rocket ship? Do they want to take a horse? Do they want to walk? Do they want to jump? Like, what's the method? How fast? And if you have those four pieces of clarity on a call, those are the enough qualifications and clarifications that will allow you to make an offer while also handling objections prior to them being brought up. Yeah. That's the methods that we usually take for the one call close. And it's very, very effective to be successful. When you are transitioning from the four W's to the offer, it looks something like this. I'll make up an example in three, two, one. So Darren, right now, your sales agency on average is closing 10 deals per month. You need that to be at 30 before the end of the year so that you can hire another salesperson so you don't have to take the majority of the calls. And it will only happen if you're closing at three times the rate that you're currently at. The biggest obstacle you have from 10 to 30 is simply not enough volume. So you're looking to me to see if I can create more volume for you so you can get to 30 per month. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Now we have all the details, right? So we have all of the details and now we can explain to them how our product will help them go from 10 to 30 to overcome the obstacle of not having predictable enough volume to ensure that they can hire the right person to make more money so you don't have to do all the calls. When you have that framework, it just makes your process so much easier. It's a very easy one to understand and it works very, very well. It's what I coach all the time.
0: And it's uh it's replicable, which is which is the other thing as well. And yes, you've got to do the work, but it's a it's a system you can follow. Because how many how many salespeople out there, despite having a sales methodology, wing it? Or they go straight to a conversation on price.
1: It happens all the time. Like people just don't follow frames or worse, they're like overly framed. So there's usually like two types of salesperson. There's like a, I'm just going to wing it because I know it to chat. And then there's the, like, I'm going to read from a script. And both of those are really poor. What we want to do is have frames for your conversations, right? So like just simple frames that will really help you sell more efficiently. The frames that we recommend are very easy, like time result frame, how long the call is going to be, what the result of the call is going to be why they're on the call, so the intention of them giving you their most valuable asset, their time, so you can shift the prospect's thinking from my most valuable asset is my credit card to actually my most valuable asset is the thing I'm giving you at no cost right now, which is my time. Yeah. Then the four W's, transition of those four W's to the offer, stating your offer, clarifying that they want that, showing them some proof of it, showing them how it works in a very simple format, showing them proof again, re- return on investment, and then the offer itself. Just a very simple breakdown and framework. It's not hard to do when you have a framework and it makes your life way easier to be more successful on calls because if you do the things correctly, you usually win.
0: Absolutely. And you'll find that when you do that, when you use a system and a framework, your conversion rates will go up. And remembering that's all based on levels of integrity because you won't, and I'm sure even today, you'll, you'll be talking to prospective customers that are simply not a fit and that's okay. Okay rather than having a salesperson that says, I've got a close irrespective of who's on the phone. 100%.
1: It's it's also always easier. I think one of the last things we can say here, it's always easier to be on a high horse to talk about like ethical sales than when you're presented it, right? So like you can believe in what... Darren and myself are saying but then when you're presented with the opportunity with money in front of you but you know it's not right to take that money that's really when the test happens that's when your opportunity is there I'm certainly not going to sit here and say that I've never had a mindset where this person is probably not the right fit but because I'm so dedicated to getting the money that I squeeze a square peg into a round hole I've definitely done that before that was a hard lesson to recognize one I cannot save someone or turn a square into a round hole circle, right? Doesn't happen. And then two, that I'm not going to practice what I preach. I'm a human being. I don't always do it perfectly. I don't always practice everything I preach that I think yeah. that'd be unfair to say, but once you do it enough times, you start to recognize that it's the easiest solution possible. But I just want to make sure that anyone watching this, that's presented with the next test. And you're on a call with someone, and you clearly know that they're going to pay you, but you don't think it's right for them. Now's your opportunity to prove to yourself that you'll back it up. And here's the thing. If you don't back it up, not because you're out of integrity because you just want the money, but because you think you can save them. You can can make it happen. You can squeeze it tight enough to make it work. You'll recognize very quickly that you won't be able to do that, but you're also not a bad person. You're just a human that tried to figure something out and it didn't happen. And thankfully, the stakes are really low, right? Like my heart surgery doctor's not going to sit on, you know, doing my surgery and be like, like it saved probably an hour if I cut here instead. <laughs> stakes are a lot higher in that scenario. They're not oh, allowed, absolutely. They're not allowed to do that. So I think just lowering the stakes a bit on your sales calls and recognizing like truly knowing who you are at the core. Like we know, you know, if you're a good person, you know, if you sell with integrity and you also know if you're trying to sell outside of integrity because you want to force it and you'll just learn from it really fast and be like, probably not a good idea. I shouldn't do that. And either you'll refund them or they'll get the result in some way, or you'll learn from it and move on. And that's how it goes sometimes.
0: Yeah. And often uh, when you, when you're talking, I'm I'm thinking there's a lot of salespeople around the world, and certainly in Australia that are under so much pressure to hit a number. It's almost like they think there's only a finite number of customers available to them. And so when they get a, when they get a customer that's live, they've got to try and convert them as much as I possibly can. And, desperation comes in now i'm sure it's the same in the states but certainly people in australia we're really good we've got the really good bs meters so we know whether somebody is being uh legitimate or they're 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 pulling trying to pull the wool all over our eyes and you can tell whether this is about that person in terms of these these people are being selfish or are they there really to there to help me and to your point being able to see a, a prospect, a customer in, in front of you and say, you know what, probably this is not the right thing for you right now and this is, or this even better, making a recommendation as to where they could go to get a, a solution they're looking for. 100%. That That is just a massive investment because you leave them with an impression of, hey, this was a great interaction. They didn't try to sell me. They didn't try to convert me. That person had integrity. That's a good thing. <clears throat>
1: Yeah. And that, I've done that many times. There's people that have come back to us later on because we didn't sell them right away, and because you know we pointed them in a
0: different direction,
1: they got the value, and they're happy about that. And then yeah. they come back.
0: I'm just as you're talking, I'm hearing your son. Is he banging on the door
1: now? <laughs> Took him 55 minutes, but I told you he would do it. My wife's been trying to hold him back.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. It adds to the uh, adds to the character of the of the show. So, um, mate, as we as we wrap up. A uh, couple of things. If a salesperson, a sales leader looking at a sales team is looking after a sales team is listening to this right now and they and they think, yeah, we're, we are an ethical selling organisation, is, is there a key piece of wisdom or advice or counsel that you would give them just to, whether it's a question or something to think about, that would get them to just reassess, are we being as ethical as we could be?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's one that's counterintuitive that might shock some people, but I think we can close with this. That's pretty interesting. It's the tell don't ask method in sales. At the end of sales calls, a lot of people say like, is there any reason you shouldn't work with me today or get started today? Or do you want to work with me? And there's just a stupid like model of like, let's ask. Here's the harsh reality of what you need to understand, right? If you're an ethical salesperson, you know what's the right decision for the person on the other end of the line, right? It's your duty to ensure that you tell them, not ask them because you are positioned on that call as the expert, someone that knows what to do to get the solution that they want. And they don't want to be asked because that's why they're on the call. They want someone to tell them. Now, here's the thing. Some people are like, oh, but that will come off as being aggressive or being too cocky or arrogant. That's not actually what's happening. Here's the thing. People want the freedom of choice, but not the burden of choice, okay? Here's the thing. The most common decision is indecision. That's why the majority of sales calls end with maybes, not yeses, not no's. They end with maybes, which is veiled as I need to think about it. I need to talk to my partner about it. Send me a proposal, uh, come back to me in a month, like those types of things. The yep. majority of times people make no decision because making a decision is very challenging. It's why when people say, hey, babe, what do you want to do for dinner tonight? It's so commonly, I don't know what do you want to do for dinner tonight? Because the burden <laughs> is a lot. You make decisions thousands and thousands of times every day, consciously and subconsciously. So the idea that you have to make a larger decision that requires finances and time and emotional uh, bearing, it's hard to do, but it makes it a lot easier when the salesperson on the other end with authenticity, conviction, transparency, and real knowledge and expertise of that industry tells you to do it. And I'll give you an example before we go that has nothing to do with sales, but it's still selling me. When I found out that I had to do the surgery, I went to a doctor. First doctor I went to, I asked him like what his experience was and what he thinks, and he kind of scoffed. He was like, "Oh well, you know, I've done a lot of them, and you're gonna be fine," and yada yada yada. And I was like, "Do I need it now?" And he's like, "Well, if you don't do it now, you know, it's you'll have to do it in a couple of years, and it's better to do it now than in later." We get back into the car and we're leaving. I'm like, "Sure, there's no way, my wife, there's no way we can go with this guy. He was so like laxadaisical in his approach, yeah. and he just wasn't confident enough for me to feel safe." And so we went to the other doctor before he even started. I said, "Hey, I'm gonna ask you something. I know it's gonna sound silly, but..." I'm a salesperson at heart. I need to be sold on this. I need to be told that I need to do this. And so he went into a spiel and he said, look, Alex, the reality is I've been doing this for 25 years. I have tons and tons of experience. I've seen people like you that have been totally healthy. My son is 29 years old right now. If you were my son, I would tell you that you must do this. And here's the reality. You need to do this and we will take care of you. Well, it was a no brainer. It was pretty easy what to do. Obviously yep. we won't because that's what I needed to hear. We need that sometimes in life. And I think your concern of am I coming off cocky or arrogant or confident or, or, uh, you know, whatever, or whatever it may be or aggressive? The reality is you don't control the perception of how someone thinks of you, right? No. Some people can watch a Donald Trump speech and say this guy's the worst person in the world and other people think he's the best person in the world. Same speech, not edited. How's that possible? I don't know, it's based off perception. Some people perceive things differently. <laughs> The reality is when you do your own presentation and tell someone, you don't have control of their perception. You only have control of your intention. And if your intention is pure and with ethics behind it and believing so much that this is the right fit for them, it's usually going to come off and be perceived as this is the right fit. And that's why Absolutely. I'm a big believer of the tell, don't ask method.
0: Love it. Hey, that's a great way to finish. And it's a great message for all salespeople, uh, particularly... If they're uh, if they're having some issues with uh, asking too many questions <laughs> and not going to the and not telling absolutely. them have some have courage of your convictions and uh, and I think the big thing is the intention what is your intention absolutely intention so mate matters. absolutely so this is a phenomenal conversation thank you so much for for yeah. being on the podcast as we just quickly wrap up uh, where can people find you what's where's the best place to find uh, Alex.
1: Yeah, prospectingondemand.com. Probably the easiest place. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and LinkedIn and every other <laughs> platform. If so you can spell my last name, S-C-H-L-I-N-S-K-Y. You will find me or my dad or my brothers. So, but I think we're the only Schlinskys. Oh, we're representing <laughs> hard. We're representing, that... hard out here. We're representing hard. So appreciate you, Darren, so much for having me. Uh, everyone else listening, grateful for you. Hope you have an amazing rest of your day
0: thanks alex absolute pleasure mate all the best cheers mate thank you. thank you for listening to the exceptional sales letter podcast i trust the information this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional and remember please take the time to rate the show subscribe to the show so other people can find it but also if i can help you jump on my calendar go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.